Well, it seems this. They just lived through one of the most amazing experiences imaginable. In fact, it was one of the most amazing experiences anyone could imagine. The crowds were still buzzing with excitement. Everyone was talking about it with his or her neighbor. Did you see that? I just couldn't believe my eyes. I've never seen anything like it before in my life. And then just as suddenly, the happy chatter was stilled by an eerie hush. A death-like blanket of silence had extinguished the excitement. It was as if they had run into a wall. There was no way around it or over it. They were stuck. Hope drowned in fear. And their fear was that they would literally drown. The Israelites had left Egypt in a rush of excitement. They they had experienced the thrill of being rescued from a hopeless situation. They had seen, they had lived through supernatural things that were quite literally unheard of. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 4 says exactly that. Miracles such as these had never occurred in all of history. They were unknown in the universe. And they were free at last. After over 400 years, they were free. But it seemed that no, it seemed that no sooner than they had started out, they found themselves with the sea in front of them and Pharaoh's chariots behind them. They had no place to go, no way of escape. It was the end of the line. But as it turned out, it was really just the beginning of their journey. A wonderful walk with God through the wilderness. One of the more or less ancient rabbis reflected on this situation they were about to enter in the following way. One reason for God's decision to lead them through the desert is that God wanted them to be in circumstances where they would have to experience constant miracles in order to survive. This would be their schooling in faith, for they would not, pardon me, for they would see through the manna, the water, the quail, the constant protection from the elements and so on, they would see that God was truly with them and powerfully active for them. In other words, he was really the God who spoke at the burning bush and shared that name with them in reality and then some. As a result, for the rest of our national history, we could look back and know that everything is in God's hands. Quick pause. We didn't do it in the Amidah selection for this evening, but we frequently do it. Paragraph 6 reminds us that we are in his keeping because his miracles are with us evening, morn, and noon. Back to the, the rabbi. And this is a lesson that is clearest. This is a lesson that is clearest in a desert where human survival, especially for a nation of millions, would have been impossible without divine intervention, end quote. And so, the journey had begun. Now, as Jews worldwide work our way through the weekly Parsha, we often note that there is a journey that's unfolding in these texts. And by these texts, I'm not talking about the Parsha tonight, but I'm talking about the Parsha from last week. That's to let those of you who weren't here last week get caught up on last week's Parsha. But, As you well know me by now, I'm often at least a week behind. So there it is. And in fact, nowhere is this idea of that journey that's unfolding more prominent in last week's Parsha, Beshalah. After the amazing events that led the people to freedom, 
the newly liberated Israel moves on into the desert. And these chapters from last week highlight some of the experiences of the people as well as their varied responses. Hopefully I got the Tali clip away from the microphone. It's getting annoying for me. I don't know about for you. Anyhow. The Parsha from last week highlights some of the experiences of the people and their varied responses along that very journey. And the first stop of the journey is on the other side of the sea called, as Dr. Patrice mentioned last week, Yam Suf. After about Sea of Reeds, in case you forgot. After over 400 years of physical oppression, the people are led to freedom by Moses. It wasn't easy, to be sure. Ultimately, God had unleashed ten miraculous signs on the land of Egypt and on its gods to convince a very stubborn pharaoh to let the people go. The last plague, the striking of the firstborn, is emphasized every year, of course, at Passover, at Pesach. By the way, please remember in this setting that Pharaoh was a firstborn. And when he saw the firstborn go down, you can imagine that he might have been thinking that he was next. That might have hurried his response. Oh, by the way, however, remember Pharaoh needed two more miracles to complete his personal 12-step program. The pillar of cloud and the sea of reeds experience. Yet the Passover experience illustrates another religious reality of redemption or liberation as well. As noted by an ancient rabbi, we have been freed from spiritual slavery to a life of liberation from self and from sin in the Messiah. You find that in Romans chapter 6 and it's set up in such a way as if it appears that the rabbi who was saying these things was thinking about them during the practice of laying tefillin. Because that's a reminder that we are set free, but we are set free to serve. Anyhow, the Passover Haggadah also reminds us we were once slaves to Pharaoh, but now we are free. Note that the first action after the liberation of our people, and we noted this last week, is that they joined together in a grand song, the Song at the Sea, which was part of our part of the Parsha, but also part of our service last week. The song, a great song, to Adonai, to our Lord. It is a wonderful section of the Torah filled with praise and with thanksgiving to our God, not only with enthusiastic voices, but also with instrumentation, which is why we'd like to throw in some instrumentation here. We don't really throw it in. It's very well performed. But anyhow, this teaches us, I'm going to suggest, an important truth. The first stop on the journey of freedom is or should be gratitude, worship. This was clear to that generation of Israel who came from the sea. And on reflection, it should be clear to us as well from our own personal experience. When we came to the realization of Yeshua and his work, of liberation on our behalf, we probably responded with gratitude and with worship. The Torah became more precious to us, or it should have. The liturgy became more alive, or it should have. The traditions became more more meaningful, or they should have. And if they didn't, or if it doesn't feel quite as enthusiastic as before, 
then look at the look in the last several pages of the Siddur under the section that says Kavanah. That's the key to it staying alive and vital in our daily experience. Well, not daily. In our weekly experience on Shabbat, as well as our daily experience with God. Well, the second stop on the journey, on the adventure, in the Parsha from last week, is the infamous place called Mara. So named because its waters were bitter. And here we have a striking contrast to the happy service at the sea. After three days in the wilderness, the same people were now very thirsty and were complaining about the lack of drinkable water. The shift in tone is remarkable. But we can't really fault the people for questioning. This too, I'm going to suggest, many of us can relate to. It's much like the contrast many times between the sweetness of a Shabbat service and the tedious Tuesday afternoon at the office. How easily our gratitude can turn to grumbling. And we turn from one of the seven dwarves to another, from happy to grumpy. Now, it's not always easy to figure out what's happening around us, but in the case of Mara, it should be noted very carefully that Moses, the text says, led Israel to this desolate place. Moses led them there. In other words, God was himself leading the people from the thrill of freedom to a place of testing and of learning. Please remember that it is a theme of Scripture that true followers of the Messiah will certainly find their faith tested at various stages of their journey or our journey with God. And it would be nice, I think all of us would agree, it would be nice if we could instantly or constantly reside in, as Israel found it, the land of milk and honey. But the reality is that we are in a wilderness that will constantly test the durability and the reality and the practicality of our faith. Again, the rabbi summarizes this pointedly in the previous chapter of Romans. We can take heart in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, confident hope. Now, while it can sometimes be confusing to us, We should not be surprised that testing is a central part of the Messianic faith journey. It certainly was at the very beginning of the Jewish journey with Abraham. You remember some of his tests, including the rather stark one of the tempted sacrifice of Isaac. But testing, if we understand it correctly, is actually a sign of God's love for us in that he gets to smooth out some of our rough edges and to draw us closer to him. The third stop in this journey from last week's parasha is a wonderful place of refreshment and of encouragement. The Torah describes it in one majestic uh, verse. It simply says, chapter 15, verse 27, and they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped by the waters. So all the people were rejuvenated. I could have said refreshed, but he did say rejuvenated. Okay, thank you. So all the people were rejuvenated after a tough time of questioning and testing. You see, our adventures with Messiah have their times of joy, but also various times camped by 
find us tamped by Mara. Yet, as we stand firm in our faith in Yeshua, there's always a place called Elim, it seems, around the corner. Remember that that generation was refreshed, yet it was still in the wilderness. So too, with our adventure with God. Which brings us to their next stop, and in effect our next stop as well. As it was read to you this evening, the Israelites are suddenly attacked from behind by the Amalekites, Amalek. So Moses, and Moses appoints Joshua to lead the Israelite fighters while he stands on that nearby hill with the rod of the Lord in his hand. And as long as Moses can hold up his hand, the Israelites prevail. Please remember what that rod was last used for when it was held up. The sea parted. Same rod. But when he lets that rod down, Amalek prevails. So, Aaron, it's often pronounced her. Maybe I'll just pronounce it Hur, because then you won't know if I'm speaking about her or him. Anyhow, so Aaron and Hur hurry alongside Moses to hold up his hand. And so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword, the text says. But in this story, it leaves us with a question. Who is the hero of this story? On one level, the text itself answers that question because Moses builds an order, altar and names it Adonai Nisi, the Lord my banner, or the Lord my victory, which is telling us how he has again fulfilled not only his promise, but the name he emphasized at that burning bush scene, the promise to go with them and to work for them. So God wins the victory over Amalek. And in the broader battle as well, the Lord himself is the hero. Through the death and resurrection of the Messiah, he has gained the victory, the ultimate victory, against all forces that would oppose him and his purposes. He, for his people Israel, he's gained victory once again. But human beings, if you heard the story carefully, heard the story carefully, that's an interesting phrase I just came up with. I'll stick with it. If you heard the story carefully, human beings still have a vital role in carrying out or enacting this victory. As in the battle with Amalek, so I'm going to suggest we can still ask on the human level, who is the hero? Well, to the Israelite troops on the ground, undoubtedly, it was Joshua who appears as the hero. But let me suggest Joshua had a different perspective. This brave young leader who leads them in the victory against Amalek. Well, he, or from his perspective, especially because he sensed the battle's ups and downs, though ending in decisive victory, from his perspective, Moses must appear to be the hero. Joshua knows that Moses is on the hill behind him, so to speak, with the staff of God. And when he raises his hand, the Israelites are victorious. Surely everything hinges on Moses. But please remember, Moses couldn't keep his hands lifted up for any length of time without the support of Aaron and Hur, of Hur. So, perhaps they are heroes. Now, Aaron, of course, had played a heroic role in the Exodus, seen as the brother and spokesman for Moses. But who is Hur? Like Joshua, 
He makes his first appearance in the story. But unlike Joshua, he soon leaves the stage. One more time, he appears with Aaron to assist him in leading the Israelites while Moses ascends Mount Sinai. That's next week's Parsha. Then he is not mentioned again except as the grandfather of Beit Salel, the master artisan who constructs the tabernacle. In other words, Hur is an ordinary person who is probably too old to go into battle with Joshua. He sees Moses and Aaron walking up the hill and follows them to see if, the, if he can be of any help. And sure enough, Moses needs a person on each side to support his hands so that he can keep them raised until Israel wins the victory. So Aaron takes one side, Hur is on the other, thus becoming a hero. Now, if you look at the story, you might object. Well, look, that's not so heroic. Anyone could have done that. But perhaps that's just the point. Sometimes a hero is the person who actually does what anyone could have done. And then, let me suggest that the whole community of Israel may be the hero. Because they're the ones who participate in that battle. So one of the humbler lessons I'm going to suggest of this story is that victory depends on each one doing their part. A community then can become heroic when its members actually do what can be done but often isn't. I'll say that again. A community can become a hero when its members actually do what can be done but often isn't. And so often, all that needs to be done is just plain, ordinary stuff. And this important principle is illustrated by the story of James Jenkins. James was an old man who lived alone in the country. He wanted to dig his yearly veggie garden, but it was always hard work for him because the ground was so hard. His only son, James Jenkins III, who used to help him, was now in prison. So the old man wrote a letter to his son and sadly described his depressing predicament. The letter... Dear son James, I'm feeling pretty bad because it looks like I won't be able to plant my veggie garden this year. I'm just getting too old to be digging up a rocky garden plot. If you were here, my troubles would be over. I know you would dig the plot for me. A few days later, he received a letter from his son. Dear Daddy Jenkins, whatever you do, by all means, don't dig up that garden. That's where I buried the bodies. Love, your son James. Well, at 4 a.m. the next morning, FBI agents and local police arrived and dug up the entire area, but they didn't find any bodies. So they apologized to the old man and left. Well, that same day, the old man received another letter from his son. Dear Daddy Jenkins, you can go ahead and plant the vegetables now. That's the best I could do under these circumstances. Love, your son, James. I did not come up with that story, but the gentleman who was up front and is now in the back sent it to me a number of years ago, so blame it on him. Anyhow, but that's all we need to do, the best we can under the circumstances, as the letter indicated, and that's the story of Hooter. But there's one essential ingredient that makes all this work, and for this we need, we need to go back to our first stop on the journey where I left you stranded on the shore. When the Egyptian, with the Egyptian cavalry behind them and the fierce sea in front of them, 
The Jews could only pray to God for help. But God surprisingly responds to Moses, Why cry out to me? Speak to the Israelites and let them, let them start going. Catch that? The message is clear. Demonstrate your commitment. Jump into the rushing waves. Only then will I help you. And so the verse says, And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea. In other words, why that sea was still raging, so to speak. And then as soon as they went into the sea, it goes on to say they went in on dry land. Because God had then performed his miracle. And it says, And the waters were for them as a wall to the right and to their left. We need to show the same kind of commitment. We, each of us, must be willing to step out or step in whichever way it is to act. The well-known author Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, The Tipping Point, retold a very haunting, familiar story from uh, many decades ago. The story of Kitty Genovese, or maybe Devisi. I'm not good at Italian. This is the young woman who was attacked on the street and stabbed to death in 1964, while 38 of her neighbors watched from their windows. Throughout the entire attack, which lasted over half an hour, none of the neighbors intervened or even called the police. The event was interpreted as a symbol of callous indifference, the callous indifference of city life, and it became a classic story regarding people's indifference to the plight of others. But Gladwell presents another interpretation developed by two Columbia University psychologists who did extensive studies to try to understand what had happened. And Gladwell says this, When people are in a group, responsibility for acting is diffused. They assume that someone else will make the call, or they assume that because no one else is acting, the apparent problem isn't really a problem. In the case of Kitty Genovese, the lesson is not that no one called despite the fact that 38 people heard her scream. It's that no one called because 38 people heard her scream. Ironically, had she been attacked on a lonely street with just one witness, she might have lived. Her neighbors failed her tragically, not from indifference, but from the assumption that someone else would take care of the problem. Someone, however, probably sometimes, however, the hero is just the ordinary person who does not wait around for someone else to do what anyone could have done. There's an interesting statement that fits in well here. And for this, you need to go back, and I apologize at one level, but not at another. You'll hear why in a minute. To one of the final scenes of the Fellowship of the Ring. It's time for Frodo to journey on alone with the Ring of Power to take it back to its source in that dark kingdom of Mordor and there destroy it. And Frodo says this, I wish the Ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And so Gandalf replies, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. So, who is the hero? The one who does what needs to be done with the time that's given to them. The one who does what needs to be done with the time that's given to them, even if someone else could do it. I forget which of the ancient rabbis said it. I think it's 
on the wall in Matt's office. If not me, then who? If not now, then when? That's the question we all need to answer this evening. Begin the answer in quiet and then follow through on it through the course of the week and weeks to come.